Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. We are digging into the crazy digital revolution that is changing every facet of our lives. We're focusing a lot here on the uh, professional end of that and what's happening on the business side. We've got one of our uh, longest running, no, our longest running expert on here, a digital all-star, Wayne Saden, who's been a CIO, a CTO, and a CDO, and now advises boards of directors and CEOs on how to optimize their digital strategy and grow in the acceleration economy. Wayne, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to see you. And it's always a pleasure to be here, Bob, especially where I read your columns every day, and that gives me inspiration for what I want to talk about. <laughs> well, Wayne, I'm going to, I hope you'll forgive me if I say I'm not buying that. You've got so many original thoughts of your own and your original perspectives on things. But, uh, Wayne, there's just so much going on today. Um, a little hint about tomorrow. I just did a, um, I guess like a report card for myself. Uh, and it's always, you know, dangerous when you grade yourself. Um, but I looked at the predictions I made for six of the Cloud Wars top 10 companies who report on a quarterly basis, what my predictions were and what the actuals were. So I think as you talk a little bit about this from some things Microsoft said in their earnings call recently, you know, uh, I just keep trying to drive home this point that these giant revenue numbers that the big cloud providers are putting out with these enormous growth rates on top of enormous bases. It isn't just some isolated thing. Well, yeah, that just applies to those handful of big companies. That growth is coming from businesses that continue to buy more and more of these types of products as they figure that cloud is the way to go into the future. Uh, I just wanted to help set that up a little bit with what you wanted to talk about. Some uh, uh, got some fascinating ideas and insights here on Microsoft. Well, you know, I watched your piece on the Microsoft earnings call and the three things that Nadella and Amy Hood said about the company, looking backward and looking forward. But you know, when you say things like we're incenting our sales force to cut the customer bill, what does that mean? Or when some of the statements Microsoft made, I looked at it with the CIO and CTO view. Yeah. What does this mean to me? And, and what do these business statements mean when you translate them into this is what I can buy and this is how it works? So that's really what I want to do is dig about a level or two deeper than the business analyst view and start saying, what does Microsoft mean that's going to drive this ahead? And what does this mean to the CIO that wants to buy the stuff? Uh, Wayne, I think that's great because, right, it's one thing for them to say, hey, we want to help our customers. Monthly cloud bills go down. That's a nice thing to say. And you're going to explain, as you just described, you know, how does that happen? What does that mean to, uh, you know, somebody at a CIO level? So, Wayne, it's great. Really, really terrific ideas here. Well, I'm saying that in advance because I get to glance at what you're you're talking about, but I think they're going to be great. Well, let's see. We start with, I'm going to read you what Nadella said or what Amy Hood said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit for clarity and, and conciseness. But the first thing he said, no company's better positioned to help organizations deliver on the digital imperative so they can do more with less. Infrastructure and data, business applications, and hybrid work, we provide unique, differentiated value. That was the overarching statement. And then he talked about four or five things in that category. One, IT relative growth. Look, the whole industry is growing. IT as a percentage of corporate spend is going way up. 
We're starting to put Internet of Things in and automating the machinery instead of just the reports. We're consuming more IT for sustainability, for ESG. And so it helps Microsoft and Oracle and Amazon and everybody, and, and that's just good news and part of why this is the greatest growth market the world has ever known, because every time you turn around, there's another use for IT and a more intense use for IT to deliver the real-time information. So, so that's that's an easy win for Microsoft. The next one, we have every layer of the stack, infrastructure, data, hybrid work, security, power platform. And he goes on to say more stuff. What that means is Microsoft is pretty uniquely positioned, Bob. They have infrastructure as a service, which is the commodity product that everybody sells, raw power, servers, networks, storage. They compete with all the big cloud players. They also have platform as a service. That's where you add security or software development or workflow or low code tools. And you know the, the field starts to narrow a little bit. Not everybody has all those tools, but Microsoft sure does. And then at the top is software as a service, the applications with ERP, healthcare, CRM. And so there Microsoft is competing more with SAP and Oracle who are not known for their infrastructure as a service offerings. So what Nadella said is Microsoft's got you covered from top to bottom, and very few of their competitors, if any, really do that. And I'll say this as a Microsoft customer, since they ran, you know, since before Windows uh, with Multiplan, buying a bunch of Microsoft stuff gives you economies of efficiency. The stuff fits together very, very well. So as a CIO, if you believe in Microsoft, if you drink their Kool-Aid, to use the expression, you do get a lot of economies of training, of efficiency, of how the pieces fit that you don't get if you're building your own you know, Tinker Toy set out of multiple clouds. Um, and the third thing is they, they he basically says moving to the cloud is the best way to shape your spend with demand uncertainty. Now, that shows up as volatility in, in Azure numbers. What it means is, as a customer, I don't have to go buy a 1,000 servers and hope I fill them up. I buy however many servers I want for however many minutes I want, and that's Microsoft's problem to manage aggregate demand. How many servers do they need to buy? In the past, the rule of thumb was you didn't run your mainframe or your big servers more than about 60% average full because you got to be able to handle a peak when you burst end of month, end of quarter, end of the week, a bad day, uh, a Super Bowl, if you're doing retail sales potentially. And so you always had to keep headroom in your environment. Now we pay Microsoft or Oracle or everybody to do that for us. And we just pay for what we need. And so the extra, their assumption is they spread it out over many, many customers. We don't all have Super Bowl Sunday the same day for our product lines. We don't all have bad weather the same day for our product lines. And so the variable cost, it's not a unique thing to Microsoft. It's a fact of the cloud. Yeah. We, the CIO, get to turn fixed cost into variable cost. And so Microsoft there is really not better than other cloud providers. It's kind of built into the industry. Now we get to the interesting one. Then, of course, optimizing your bill. We're incenting our field to ensure the bills for our customers come down. Okay, that's the controversial part. What, what do you mean? You're telling salespeople to sell less? No. First thing he says right after that is that um, customers are using more reserved instances. And that's like a price discount. 
Yeah, here's what it means. A reserved instance is, I don't want to buy variable. I don't want to buy this much cloud. I want to guarantee this much cloud. We call that fixed cost. Microsoft says that's a discount because it lowered your bill. Guess what? If you don't need all that cloud, you still paid Microsoft for it. But now what you did is you shifted the uncertainty of your demand from Microsoft, uh -huh. the pure cloud model, to you. Uh -huh. Wonderful. Reduced your bill, but increased your risk because maybe you don't need that much service, but you're still paying for it. That's the one thing. Um, the other part of optimizing the spend, they also said, was the productivity bundles. Microsoft 365 was up 14%. Most interesting, the E5 flavor of that product was up 60%. Now, for those that don't know the arcana of Microsoft licensing, Microsoft 365 is Windows plus Office 365 plus a whole bunch of other tools. The E5 version is Microsoft's Swiss Army knife on steroids. It includes 40, maybe 50 SKUs, depending on how you break them down. It includes security, it includes privacy, it includes a whole host of kind of add-on services. And so they have an E1, an E3, and an E5. E5 is the most expensive by far. It is usually used in the largest enterprises that have very good Microsoft penetration. But the margins on these kind of products are enormous. Here's two reasons. One, if Microsoft offers a security product and you use it, Okay, if you don't use it, they still had to write the code. Yeah. So the, the profit margin on that stuff is in the 90s, I'm sure. If I'm selling raw computing power, infrastructure, what Amazon sells and Google sells, every time I buy a little bit, that's a Microsoft server that just woke up and ran. Mm -hmm. So they have to pay for the electricity and the cooling. If I put in a product and don't use it, it costs them exactly zero once they've written it to maintain it. So the margin on some of these complex, high-stack products is extremely good because what I've seen as a consultant is a lot of companies buy E5 licenses because now we got everything, but they don't turn the features on. It's this hygiene we talk about. We buy all the security pieces and then we don't put them in because we're busy because the labor to put these things in is not trivial. So if I say to the salesperson, Let's switch the customer from buying lots of variable cost servers to fixed cost. I've lowered their bill. Hey, let's sell them an E5 license. Now look at all the other things they just got. Isn't that a wonderful upsell? But they don't turn them on. So Microsoft raises their billing. The customer gets a discount. And Microsoft shifted you potentially from a kind of high variable cost product, MIPS, and Cycles, Storage, and Network, to a piece of software that you may not turn on. So IBM did this 40 years ago. They would sell you these big bundles and they were great because what I needed as a CIO, I didn't have to go back to the board and ask for the money again. It was in my bundle. Yeah, You got this and this and this and this and this. Okay, turn that on. Okay, turn that on too. I've now got predictable cost and maybe it's a little higher but I traded the variable cost for the knowledge I've got whatever tool I need to solve the problem I'm facing. So I think this adds Microsoft is a valuable vendor. Look at all the products they've got in my shop, but I don't think Microsoft is going to take a profit hit by doing this.
even though I, as the customer, might feel better about what I'm getting for my money. Yeah. So I think that's optimizing spend just says spend it more wisely and take a little bit of the risk back, you know, and buy what you need, maybe ahead of needing it. And so I think the Microsoft salespeople are still going to get their Mercedes and their beach house, um, but we're all going to feel better about the relationship. <laughs> yeah, and, okay, uh, thanks. That's that's really really insightful. I know when I for, had talked about some of that thing, I said, "Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to give financial advice to Microsoft to you know to Amy Hood or anybody." But I think what you've done is sort of penetrated inside of that and i think it's a growing another growing sign of the maturation of this business right where it isn't just hey we only have one way to sell you know here are the terms you know take it this way or you know too bad so this is it 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 uh it's just another way i think for these companies to try to say hey we can adapt to the times as well and try to give you more options what's going on Wayne, I thought it was interesting as well how, uh, you know, you dug into a little bit of that where Nadella, you know, very bluntly came out and said, we're going to start to take share. You know, I think they'd seen AWS creeping in, creeping in, creeping in, Google Cloud, same thing. And uh, Nadella can be a soft spoken person, but nobody should mistake that for uh, thinking that there isn't a, a very hard steel fist inside that velvet glove. Yeah, and when Microsoft is talking about taking share, it ties back to the first point, which is they offer me products from the bottom of the stack infrastructure to the top of the stack software as a service. And so what they're talking about, first thing Della said, is we're the platform of choice for SAP apps in the cloud. So SAP is not known for having a big infrastructure as a service business. They sell the higher margin software, SaaS products. So Microsoft is saying to SAP, let's build the links and we'll be your provider of choice. And SAP then keeps their high margin business selling software and Microsoft gets to handle some of the heavy lifting for them. To the CIO, what that says is by going to them together, I don't have to do the gluing together of the multi-cloud. That's number one. Number two, of course, they talked about, again, the announcement with Oracle. And I refer to this kind of uh, uh, a connection of the cloud products as a melded cloud. You know, we have hybrid cloud, which is on-prem and in the cloud. We have multi-cloud that's multiple things I can buy. I think there's another category that Microsoft and their partners are defining, and I call that melded cloud. It's not multi-cloud because I don't just buy one of these and one of these, and now I glue it together myself. Microsoft and SAP help me over here. Microsoft and Oracle help me over here. So now it's not as daunting as having to learn the million commands in each cloud and sending my people off to 47 certification schools because Microsoft and Oracle, Microsoft and SAP, Microsoft and whatever partner are melding the capabilities together and taking some of the risk, some of the setup time, some of the setup cost out of the equation. And I think Microsoft has done extremely well at partnering with competitors, right? They're partnering with Oracle. They're partnering with SAP. But customers want that choice. And they often, at the enterprise scale, have all three vendors in the shop. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Microsoft, look, their ERP is terrific. But is anybody going to argue that Oracle and SAP in the largest shops have more maturity, more confidence? So it's not like Microsoft is going to knock either one of them out in the ERP business at this point in time. 
but having that connection means we can play to everybody's strength. And quite frankly, right, it's everybody against AWS. <laughs> they are the leader. But I'll also point out, I pointed this out before, they're the leader in the lowest margin, most commoditized business. Yes. It is easier to switch buying server capacity from product A to product B than it is to switch from Oracle's ERP to Microsoft's ERP or SAP's ERP. So when you're when you're in the commodity business, your margins are lower and you're depending on volume. I got to keep raising the volume, lower the unit cost. And so Microsoft is wisely competing the whole stack, but I think they're putting their effort in the middle and high end where the stickiness is higher, which takes me to the next point. And Adela commented, triple digit growth in Cosmos DB and container app services. And you take these two things and say, what are people doing? People are writing applications at a completely different frontier of efficiency, cloud native serverless container-based apps. Let me break that down for people that aren't IT nerds, for CEOs and boards. Low code development with citizen developers, you are experts that aren't in IT, are now becoming more and more possible without breaking stuff in security, in data access, in data access and data storage. Microsoft is saying the professional developer can write a program without caring about where it runs. Yeah. The servers are magic. The databases are magic. Because a lot of what we spent our time on years ago was how many tape drives do we have? How much disk storage do we have? Do we have to buy more? And where are we going to put the darn thing? Yeah. And what, what Nadella is saying is the modern cloud provider with a good database, like Microsoft sells, Cosmos, with a good set of platform as a service tools, which Microsoft sells, allows your developers, pro, de pro devs and citizen developers, to do things we couldn't do efficiently. So, by the way, when you talk about lowering the customer's bill, I don't think he's trying to lower the dollars spent with Microsoft. He's trying to raise the value of what you get. Mm -hmm. If I spend a dollar and get a server, what did I get? If I spend a dollar and got a place to run a modern, secure application that's automatically on my phone, what did I just get for that dollar? Yeah. And I think Microsoft is saying, I'm going to give you a lot more for your money because of our unique approach to cover I in information, sorry, infrastructure as a service, up to software as a service. And they're saying over and over again in different words, we're unique. Nobody else offers that gamut for, for you as a customer. Yeah. Yeah, Wayne. I, I again I think Nadella uh is so good at talking about big picture things that are going on. And I think uh, you know, what you've really done here, like pull together, how does that big picture then translate into what, you know, we mere mortals have to do every day, you know, uh, getting stuff done. I just wanted to add one thing, you know, you talked about the triple digit growth in Cosmos DB and container app services and the low code, no code thing. Uh, I It was uh, ServiceNow CEO, Bill McDermott, who, you know, in a conversation with me a couple of weeks ago, he said that in the next two years, uh, businesses will write 750 million new applications. And that can be done the old way, right? Uh, it's just not humanly possible. So this explosion coming up here in the low-code, no-code space, typified by what you just explained, Wayne, very, you know, this is big impact stuff, right? It's not some, uh, you know, behind some curtain somewhere. 
Well, it can be, and the impact can be both good and bad. Yeah. Uh, let me say to follow up on 750 million apps, you got two choices as a CIO. You can write 749 million bad Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and put them out in the world, or you can provide for your internal customers, your, your business users, a framework for building and deploying secure, manageable, maintainable applications. That's not what's been happening before. And, you know, kudos to ServiceNow for giving companies a framework for building kind of a workflow. When I looked at the technology of ServiceNow originally, I said, yeah, so it's workflow and RPA and some basic ingredients that other companies have been selling for a while. Their genius was in showing people how to compose those into real problem-solving applications that connected to the systems you have. And so if you look at ServiceNow, they provide a lot of the glue that glues things together and a lot of templates for people who kind of don't know, how do I onboard people with automation if I have this tool, this tool? So my hat's off to them for kind of redefining the category of workflow plus ERP, I'm sorry, plus uh, RPA and turning it into a very high profit company. And Microsoft is saying at a bigger, 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 bigger scale, kind of the same thing. We have a tool set that allows you, the CIO, to empower your own developers, plus everybody else in your company that's been writing these half-baked Excel and Access apps to do it better. Okay. And by the way, once it's done, to maintain it better. When I talk, when he talks about writing a contain a serverless container app, I no longer have to maintain the server it runs on. You know, right now companies get hacked because they don't put the right patches on their server or on their database. When you're running in a serverless container environment, that's Microsoft's problem. And I'm going to guess that Microsoft, like Google and Amazon and Oracle, are pretty damn good at that, <laughs> at putting on all the patches immediately. Yeah. Um, whereas my shop, your shop, their shop, his shop, her shop, may let a couple go. So it creates a very, very powerful environment for producing higher quality at a lower cost. And so I don't think Microsoft, as I said, is going to say that all the salespeople take less revenue, but demonstrate more value. Yeah. And then right. we'll be happy to send them more money because the services per unit where they're competing with Oracle and Google are going to go down when the value add on the higher level stuff goes up and the margins are terrific. So Wayne, that's you've covered two of the three. I think the three major points that Nadella and Amy Hood made. One is, uh, you know, we're going to help customers lower their bills. Although, you know, we might put an asterisk around the word "lower," as you've just eloquently described. Um, then Microsoft says we're going to take share from competitors in this incredibly, uh, wickedly savage uh, competitive business. And the third thing. He said, we are also going to double down inside Microsoft on our operational excellence. Now, how will that play out and why should a CIO, CTO customer care? Well, there was one amazing disclosure in the Microsoft earnings that I'm not an accountant, but I can certainly read a financial statement. And Amy Hood said this, they are putting a 50% increase on depreciable life of the assets in their data centers. Microsoft has said, we are extending the depreciable useful life for server and network equipment in the cloud infrastructure from four years to six years. It's like, wow. 
I got to tell you, companies, when they're having a tough year, if they have a lot of capital assets, IT or you know, bulldozers, can there's a little accounting, I don't want to call it a trick, yeah. raise the depreciable life of your equipment, and then you can take a lower non-cash depreciation charge. It's not cash, it doesn't put money in your pocket, but it certainly is gap um, applicable. Yeah. And so to see a company at the scale of Microsoft with the scope of capital assets they have declare that they're going to last 50% longer is pretty dramatic. Um, now, I will say companies that they, you don't want to bounce around. You don't want to say it's four years, now it's six years, now it's five years, now it's seven years. That's managing earnings and you don't do it. So a company at Microsoft size with the scrutiny of their auditors and the SEC and the regulators are... I'm sure, absolutely sure this is true, which is pretty remarkable. Servers, you know, we go through them in no time. But Microsoft, with their hundreds of millions, maybe billions of servers, figured out a way to make them last 50% longer in useful life. Mm -hmm. And what, what Hood did say was in uh, fiscal year 23, that's going to raise their income by $3.7 billion <laughs> by having a lower depreciation charge. And in the quarter, the first quarter alone, it'll be 1.1 billion, which gives you a run rate probably closer to 5 billion when you look at their growth. And so even a company like Microsoft size, between four and 5 billion is real money. But think about what they're able to do and what that says to us. If we could be as good as Microsoft, and again, I'm going to assume Oracle, Google are pretty good at this too. Um, just imagine how much more efficiency they're able to wring out of their equipment. Yeah. When I ran my own servers, I had four years for a lot of desktop equipment, but I had three years for servers. And that's only because I could take the highest performing servers after two years and put them in a lower performing area. Yeah, And I had to move them around. So Microsoft is saying somehow we're going to get six years of use out of our servers. And, you know, Moore's law is 30% a year increase in performance do that times six and it's 90% better, hundred and something percent better. And they're still going to get performance out of this capital stack. So that's the only place I saw in the report that Microsoft was putting a dollar figure on something they were doing. Mm -hmm. But it, what it says to me is when you do a lot of something and you pay attention to it, you really get good at it. Yeah. You know, we had, we had a discussion a while ago about cloud repatriation, right? There was a company that said, um, companies should start in the cloud and then eventually take it back in their own shop because they'll be better at it. And I made the point, COGS is different than SGNA. Yeah. If your business is running servers, you get really good at it. Yeah. If your business is making widgets, you don't get really good at running servers. And the cloud says to the CIO, you, CIO, can take advantage of Microsoft's COGS investment or Google's or Amazon's. And you shouldn't be doing it yourself because we can make our stuff last 50% longer than you can make your stuff. Mm -hmm. So this says to me, because I can't get six years out of a server as a CIO. If they can get six years out of a server and I don't have to pay for the headroom, that's free to me. Look at the economics. Yeah. They're just increasingly pulling away from what all but the biggest, most sophisticated companies can possibly deliver. So that's a terrific number. As an accountant, you want to think, hmm, what are they doing here? As a CIO, this says there's a certain magic in having 100 million, 
a billion, I don't know how many servers they have, they don't disclose. There's a certain magic in doing anything at that scale. And Microsoft has put it into their financial statement and into their public disclosure. So that's a pretty terrific number. And I would be, as a CIO, a fool to go into my boardroom and say, I can do better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Or we'll figure out a way somehow. Just, you know, give me two years. Now there's there's more important things to do. Wayne, um, I know we wanted to talk some too about the sustainability investments for a work from home world. But first, I just wanted to offer a message from our sponsor, BMC. If you think of Simone Biles, you think of someone bringing the A game to her sport, the absolute highest level you can think of. And you can get to that level in business as well. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. It's when automation is effortless and therefore allows people to concentrate on innovation. You can find out more at bmc.com slash agame. So Wayne, what about sustainability investments in a work from home world or work from anywhere world? Well, I, you know, I, I did a quick video on that a couple of weeks ago, but Bob, it's important enough that I wanted to make a longer statement about it. Yeah. Um, let's look at a couple of facts. Work from home is continuing. Companies wanted people to come back to work. But we have BA5 variant of COVID. We have monkeypox. We have our current full employment recession, if you can call it that, the lowest unemployment in decades, and maybe we're in a recession. We got a workforce that's shrinking. People have retired. People your age and my age, a lot of them don't like working anymore. I don't understand that. You don't either, clearly. But a lot of people said, I'm not coming back. Um, we had a million people in the US die from COVID that reduced our workforce. And we had reduced immigration in this country. So we've got a number of factors that are still keeping employees in the driver's seat. And for safety reasons, there are a lot of people who may not need to go back to work right now. That's number one. And so number two, sustainability is important. Look, we all don't want to live in a world that's hotter and wetter or colder and drier, right? We want to live in a world that's the one we grew up in. I had a beach house. I sold it because I was getting tired of the hurricanes getting closer to my front door every year. I'm 300 miles inland and I think I might be safe, except it's 110 degrees here now. So sustainability matters to us. And also if you're a company running your business as a board member, ESG is what you need to get the good housekeeping seal of approval from the regulation, uh, regulating authorities. You gotta be a good ESG citizen. And so, we got fewer people in headquarters. We got headquarters buildings shrinking. That's good. The companies get to say, we have fewer square feet of commercial space. But, you know, I went back to my house and now I may not drive as much, but I've got a home office. I've got lights going on behind here. I've got lots of stuff. Lots of employees do that. Um, I also, two points, because I used to be in the energy business. I was in the, uh, the utility business twice in my career. The electrical grid in the United States is not where it needs to be to support the electrification that is needed to decarbonize the energy infrastructure. That's, I said a lot of words in one sentence, sorry. We've got to reduce the reliance on carbon you know, thermal power plants, which implies we're going to put more episodic power, solar and wind, a little bit of hydro. And then we've got to move it further from where we make it to where we need it, because there's a lot more sources of it in places you may not want to build a power plant. You know, you put the wind 
turbines where the wind is and the solar panels where the sun shines. Right. And so the grid is changing. We're putting in millions of electric cars. We've got to be able to take advantage of the capability of these vehicle to grid, grid to vehicle, and build a different electrical grid. So we could talk about that in great detail, but I won't bore you. So we've got a grid that's a mess. We've got a need for electrification. We have more people at home and fewer people in the office. So let's make some points about what companies should do. First thing is, hey, boards, accept that work from home is here to stay. It is not something going away as soon as the next vaccine comes out. Because who knows what will come up next? We're going to be working from home more and more and more in this country and around the world. And for lots of reasons, that's good. Embrace the sustainability benefit of reduced commuting. Mm -hmm. Companies are not going to be renewing leases for these headquarters office towers. And so let's, let's all take that victory lap. And we are doing a sustainability. If your employees work from home three, four, or five days a week, take the credit. But you know what, Bob? When we had the first beginning of the pandemic, we sent people home and we started buying them cameras, microphones, better chairs, better desks. Companies said, these are investments we can and should make in our people. Mm -hmm. And also good investments in our productivity, right? They're not just nice to people. They're good for productivity. Well, how about taking a giant step and figuring out how to do this? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a tax accountant. So I don't know what the business and legal ramifications are. But why don't we give employees help in building a sustainable grid for themselves? Now, if you have a home, the company can say, I'm going to put a battery. I'll pay for a battery in your garage. I'll pay for solar panels on your roof. There's got to be a way that the company can help subsidize that for employees. We'll give you X number of dollars to get you started. We'll give you X number of dollars per week and help pay for the cost of that stuff. We'll do something involving a virtual power plant. You know, there's a thing called a virtual power plant. You put all the power walls together if you're, if you're a Tesla customer. And they literally provide a power plant to California that's dispatchable and demand manageable. So that says, I say, my battery contributes to the overall stability of the California grid if I live there. Texas is going to start that late this year, early next year. What are the company, why doesn't Salesforce or IBM or Microsoft say, we have a virtual power plant in every state that allows it and we'll help the grid of that state with our own employees and our investment. Now, the problem becomes lots of people don't own, they rent. Well, what do we do for those people? So I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna turn my camera a little bit here. Uh -huh. this, is, this is a battery. Uh -huh. Just like the little battery we might power our phone from, but this will run my refrigerator for about two days. Behind it is one of the several sets of portable solar cells I bought. I have about three of these batteries. I have an air conditioner for my bedroom, separate air conditioner. I have one for my wine because I'm a wine person and I have one for my fridge. And then I have three sets of solar panels and a cord big enough to stick out the window. Mm -hmm. So if we had an extended power failure here in Texas where I live, I could put this stuff to work to maintain my food and have a reasonable temperature and protect my valuable wine. Mm -hmm. Again, first world problems, right? <laughs> um, but, but why don't companies think about that? These I've got about 
$3,000 worth of investment in these batteries. Because I rent, I wasn't going to put something in the garage and put an inverter and a transfer switch that benefits my landlord. Um, when I buy, I will do all those things. But why don't we as companies help our employees not be um, at the mercy of the weather, whether it's heat or cold, and keep them working? I can connect my um, entire network to this thing. And I've got another one sitting under my network. So if AT&T is up, I have connectivity. What if we got them a Starlink and we put a Starlink out on the roof or in the front yard if I had to? You know, so there's lots of things companies can do to improve resilience. So it's sustainability plus resilience. And I want to challenge boards and CEOs plus their general counsel, their CHRO, their tax people. How do we get a business write-off like we would for a desk or a chair or a camera or a microphone for providing this stuff to our employees, whether it's built in and we subsidize it during our employment term, or we make it a portable unit, which are getting better at an amazing rate. This thing is about half the size it would have been a year ago. Uh -huh. These solar panels are about three months old. They're about 50% better than a year and they're obsolete already. The next ones I buy, will be twice this power. Uh -huh. So why don't we do well by doing good? And it's a challenge to corporate executives. Make your employees able to be more resilient on the grid or off the grid and help the world at the same time by making an investment in sustainability and not to be too mercenary, but you could claim that as a scope one reduction sure. if your employees can decarbonize to some extent with solar panels and battery backup. Well, Hey, Wayne, you know, I, uh, idea is a, a little bit different. I think some boards and CXOs are going to hear that and say, what, what, what is this guy thinking? But I don't know. When is the first time, 15 years ago, something like that, you heard somebody say, hey, my company uh, is offering memberships to a gym. And it all came about with this broader thinking about, you know, do you want to wait till people get sick and then there's health insurance or do you want to help people? remain healthy and you know take responsibility for their own health so i think this fits in with a new sense of purpose about you know how companies deal with people and wayne you know your larger point at the beginning of this second segment here about the work from home i couldn't agree with you more and these mandates and all and i'm sure some companies are going to try to do that and there's of course some jobs where you have to be in the office but for all those where there's some uh where people have options about it man i think you're a hundred percent right um, you know, and, and even take the uh, pandemic type things out of it. It's just people just saying, I don't want to sit in a car for two or three hours a day or a train or a bus or a subway uh, in traffic. And they've just got a taste of it, uh, of what it's like not doing that. So I agree with you, Wayne. No going back there. And I think you've offered some very uh, wise and forward looking counsel there toward boards about what they might do. So Wayne, I think from your uh your 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 care